0: removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct-injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell.
1: Happy New Year! Hey, welcome to 2012 and the first Nerdist podcast of this year. Uh, this was uh, Tim Minchin. I recorded this in London in December when I went there to shoot stuff for BBC America. Next Nerdist TV special airs January 14th with Alison Bree and Kunal Nayar. Tim is a freaking genius. Uh, I met him at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal last year. And then this past year, I was lucky enough to get to do uh, The Green Room. It's a Showtime show hosted by Paul Provenza. And uh, Jimmy Carr was on that episode, and Judah Friedlander, and Eddie Izzard. and uh, The show was so much damn fun, and Tim was hilarious. Uh, I'm going to add one of his songs at the end of this podcast, so stick around until then. Or you can just go to YouTube, look up Tim Minchin, or find him on the tweets at Tim Minchin, M-I-N-C-H-I-N. Uh, or don't, you don't have to, you don't have to do any of those things, because, you know what, you're a grown-up, well, damn it! you can make your own decisions. One of those decisions could be coming to see the Nerdist Podcast live when it comes to a city near you. Go to Nerdist.com slash calendar to get tickets and info about that. And now the Nerdist Podcast number 155 with the amazing Tim Minchin! now
0: entering Nerdist.com.
2: Fuck them fuck fuck is the opening salvo for the podcast. <laughs> it is. Uh,
1: fuck them. Welcome. Was uh, this is a language-free. This is this is a podcast, isn't it? It is language dense, but you can swear as much as you want. Excellent. Um, Tim mentioned... this is really this is great that because we're usually not remotely in the same part of the world. No, we
2: we we usually make a a thing, make it a point to. Uh, make sure as far away apart far apart from each other as possible
1: but this time it was unavoidable
2: it was a problem yeah yeah i
1: think it's good we're making lemonade
2: (laughs) out of the lemons of our proximity
1: (laughs) (laughs) these proximity lemons have really yielded some it's been a good year for a tasty tasty pulp proximity lemons um sounds like a band it's our band we're the proximity (laughs) lemons but but the trick, Hello, is, the trick is we can never be in the same venue at the same time One person has to be in one venue And the other has to be in the other venue And you need to be watching both shows At the same time to understand
2: Yeah, the, it's, you have the, to put One sort of sound source In one ear Because yep. it's a stereo thing yep. And I think we just need to wait for broadband To get better but We a, can just
1: stream it As soon as that happens it's going to be really good. It's going to be great. Your, your, your uh, office space is pretty cool. Yeah. I painted the, the walls blue
2: in order to make it feel less unblue. Yeah. Uh, I blue it. And I put, there were all these mirrors, because it used to be a dressing room, and I put black cloth over the mirrors so that I didn't have to stare at my stupid face. Because <laughs> you know when you're sitting in a restaurant and there's a mirror or something and you're sitting opposite it, you can't help but look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, even for the sort of schadenfreude of, of the, the awfulness of your own head um, in some people's cases. And I thought that would be a problem. Although by the time we finally got round to blacking out the mirrors, I'd sort of stopped noticing myself.
1: So You've desensi- You were desensitised to yourself. To
2: my own image, yeah. I... Which happens a bit in this game anyway.
1: My... Uh... The, the hotel I'm staying at, there is a full mirror to the left of the toilet. Right. So you have a full view yourself, for or anything, you, if you're urinating or blowing your nose or just... Blowing your load. Blowing your load against the back of the British <laughs> 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 that's toilet. It's disgusting. What? No, it's I, not. I it's travel natural. a lot. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's <laughs> a lonely. lonely. Time. It's very lonely. And hotel rooms
2: make you feel sexy, don't they? they? I mean, well, they used to. Before I started in them all the time, it used to trigger this sort of, hotel room, find someone to have sex with or, or solve it some other way right. sort of response but now I've lost that. They're not sexy to me anymore.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. It's really just a place to go uh, drop your stuff for a few minutes and then go work and then... Uh, what do you do in hotel room? rooms? Do you watch telly? I never watch television anymore. I just... It's just all uh, internet. Yeah. Internet, iPad. Yeah. I I, I I falsely congratulated myself recently for like, you know what? I really used to think I was addicted to television and I never watch television anymore. Let me just go back onto the internet. Yeah, anyway. that's right. Oh,
2: okay. I, I, I think I'm seriously addicted to looking at stuff online like Twitter and social networking, bollocks. Email. But, uh, but I never watched TV. But I never really did. I'm watching an American TV series called Friday Night Lights at the moment. Does that make me bad?
1: Not at all. Are they, everyone, that, that's an amazing show that I, I just haven't started watching. It's pretty yet. much a soap opera. Yeah. But it's
2: just really well done. Mostly really well acted. and It's so obvious because the sports... Like the reason we love sports is because we get to know the characters, we get to know the players and stuff, mm-hmm. and they're sort of exploiting both sport and drama. Them, there's just that that movie genre of the, the Mighty Ducks, um, underdog arc. And you do it week after week, you know. You just put a game at the end of every episode, and <laughs> it's so addictive because <laughs> you care about what team, you care about your team. Yeah, they've generated fictional sport
1: I just haven't started watching it the thing that initially put me off Friday Night Lights is that I'm not a I'm not a football fan but then everyone says it. it's not about the no, football I don't even know what's going on it doesn't matter are you sports do you like Do you like sports yeah
2: yeah I do but I don't I don't engage I haven't got into football over here soccer because I just don't have time and I don't have Sky TV And whereas in Australia I was a pretty pretty um, keen follower of the Fremantle Dockers Mm-hmm. But that, that's Australian rules, which is a, it's best sport in the world. Obviously. Rugby, mm. no, not rugby. Football. No football. Footy. Footy. No, it's not. It's not any of the ones
1: you know. You Australians and your cutening of words. Footy. Footy. Bathing no, suits. That's totally, Cozies.
2: No, over on the east coast they are. They bathers in the west. <laughs> See, that's even more adorable. Bathers. <laughs> oh. Condescending laugh
1: It's not, it's so adorable. <laughs> the this, what do you call it? We have bathing suits. <laughs> Swim trunks. Swim trunks. We, uh, America, we need to find one word for that. We're just like, we're just like Dutch or ge- actually, because English is a Germanic language, so we're just, we're, ju- we're more on the Germanic side where right. we just like more harden words, words and yeah. we're, they're kind of ugly. Stack them up. We do, we really mm. just mash them. They're, they're disgusting. does. Uh, speedos. You, you we say speedos. That's yeah, 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 a brand. But you don't call them budgie smugglers. We do not call them budgie smugglers. I mean, now we will. Now, no. now that's you have brought yeah. that. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you, chocks or bu- budgie smugglers. I think it's. I think it is. And I'm sorry to tell you this. It's your responsibility to infect our vocabulary the way the cane toad. Infected Australia Okay With as many uh, Adorable uh, uh, Colloquialisms as possible sure. So Just If you want to sprinkle them out Throughout the podcast I think people would really appreciate it
2: I'm that. actually like the worst person I'm a very Un-Australian Australian I don't I don't use any of those things Naturally Although I You don't You don't actually know it. I, I still discover words That people Don't use Especially um, On the radio When I get in trouble For saying bastard And bugger Which are which have, have no weight in Australia. You can say bastard and bugger on the radio. You can't hear. No. Really. Not on the BBC. No.
1: Oh, I thought they were. I thought they were super lax about language over here. No, they're real here. tight bastards. Bugger. <laughs> we, we can we could even say that in the States. Yeah. You can say bugger. Yeah, we can say bugger, but not buggery. We could say buggery because I think it doesn't really mean anything to anyone in Australia. It's a really the way American standards works. Is that if someone complains about it, then it's a problem. Yeah. But if no one complains, and the main, the main uh, glob of people that would complain live, kind of in very rural places yeah. or in the middle of the country, and they are not going to know well, what buggery is. Yeah. Now, if you told them what it meant, then they would complain. Yeah. But they're yeah. not. But they're not going to. They're not going to know. Buggery. Buggery. Um, it's in the Bible. Buggery. Is it? In
2: some translations. Oh, okay. And really. Bestiality is I know what that is
1: Yeah it's in Goat the Bible. buggery
2: Goat buggery Goat buggery I think when you're having sex With a goat No one really cares What hole you're going at I don't think so Does it even matter At that point I think by then You're kind of ethically You've crossed the line
1: Yeah I don't and know Whether it's goat anal or, <laughs> or, or normal goat sex Goats always sound like They're being fucked in the ass <laughs> <laughs> they don't, nah. Nah, nah. They, It's terrible The goats hate painal they hate mm. it. Where how did you get well, from guys. I've never been to Western Australia, which you're from Perth. Uh yeah. And I've never I've never I've never been I've never been to Perth because there is a there's a lot of ground to cover between between Eastern Australia yeah, and is a, a
2: whole lot of nothing.
1: Is, is 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 that sort of middle what is it, Alice Springs, that, that the middle of Australia is it, is it inhabitable at all?
2: Well it depends who you are. I mean Alice itself has a you know, I don't know how many people live there, but it's not many. Mm-hmm but it's some thousands or something. Um, but I think it, it's mostly... I don't actually know the history of Alice, What it, whether it grew up around tourism or something. There's a train that runs from Darwin in the north through Alice down to Adelaide in the south, um, which is about the height of the United States. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a big... And you only hit one town, you know. There's a lot of space in the middle of Australia. But Alice is not... You, you can't drive across the middle of australia you 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 don't traverse the the guts you can't you can but you need a special license and a diesel car because you're not allowed petrol because of the addiction problems in aboriginal communities and all this you need to tell the cops and all that sort of stuff if you want to travel the dirt road from kalgoorlie to Mm Alice, which is whatever a thousand miles or something and uh and then you can drive Alice to the eastern states if you want, but you've got to get through the mountains and stuff. Um, <laughs> this is really boring. It's interesting. It's not to me. Actually, it's but fascinating. You, to you me. drive along the south coast. To, you can drive from uh, Kalgoorlie to Port Perry and um, the Eyre Peninsula, which is across the bottom of the Nullarbor Plain. And then you drive up. But, but no one drives through the middle of Australia. And there are um, only, pretty much only, Aboriginal communities in a big, big part—probably two-thirds of Australia—might be occupied by. I'm just pulling figures out of my ass, but maybe a uh, hundred thousand or something people, and most of them are Aboriginal communities. It's
1: it's incredible because the, because the the land mass of Australia is quite large, but there's only about twenty million Australians or so. Yeah, yeah, right.
2: yeah. So there's twenty millions. Uh, Australia is, I think, um, four-fifths the size of the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah 20 million wow what's perth? And most of them are within uh, the the five percent of land on the coast all just all
1: on the yeah. coastal region what, what what's what's perth like I mean in, in comparison to to Eastern Australia like Sydney Melbourne
2: well I don't know I, I, it's very hard when it's your hometown to have any sort of judgment of it but there's there's two million people in Perth or something it's very very beautiful it's got a big wide amazing river and and a a mountain It's not really a, a mountain, but a, a big steep hill uh, called Mount Eliza that overlooks the river. And so you can go up to what's called King's Park, which is this huge bit of untouched land in the middle of the city mm-hmm. and acres and acres and acres. I don't know, what is it, a 1,000 thousand acres or something? And look down over the whole city and the river and stuff, and then you drive 15 minutes the other way and you hit the Indian Ocean, which is just wow. on any day... I grew up near Swanbourne Beach and pretty much any day of the year you can go down to the beach and it could be 25, 30 degrees, whatever that is in your language, you know, really a nice, mm-hmm. perfect day and there'll be three people on the beach and sort of just acres of white sand. And, and yet, uh, you know, you can get good coffee and great food and great wine and I I'm not, this sort of... I don't know. There's definitely something about Perth that makes people a little uh defensive or or uh paranoid about other it's, it's got a little bit of small town stuff going on oh, gotcha. but not a small town but isolated small town so right. it's a big thing to go to the next town when you live in perth you got to get on a plane to get to adelaide and that's the next town basically i mean you can go down to albany which is six hours away and i think it's got four hundred thousand people or something
1: I've never I, I, I always kind of toy with the idea of just kind of going into Sydney and then like oh then I'll go to Perth and then I'll fly over to New Zealand and yeah. but it actually is a tremendous amount big. of travel it's all big yeah it's yeah. like popping to LA it's the
2: same from New York but yeah. you, you should do it one day but do it and take three weeks and go down to the southwest into the wine regions and then go up to through cowberry up into the kimberley it's insane It'll change your life it's beautiful was there it's any space is there any break. kind of
1: comedy scene in perth or were you were you did you start more in the music scene and then kind of drifted yeah into comedy? sort of music theater yeah so i didn't really i wasn't doing comedy when i lived in
2: perth um at all i did a bit of uni theater sort of comedy and Actually, I had done a couple of things with, with a couple of friends that you'd say is comedy, but that, that's more putting on theatre shows, putting on sketch shows sort mm-hmm. of thing. There was one venue in Perth that did comedy called The Brass Monkey, a, a mm-hmm. room, and uh, stand-ups did stuff there, but I never, went, I never watched comedy either. Um, so the answer is no, there's not. There was, you certainly could live as a comedian in Perth unless you're on the radio. Good oh.
1: morning, Perth. So th- those are pretty much the same everywhere, the morning radio shows?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, there's not really anyone in Australia making a good living out of stand-up, um, unless they're a radio or TV presenter at the same time. That's why people like me live here, because the vast majority of what I do is live. Um, yeah, I don't really do much TV or radio, except when I'm trying to flog a DVD.
1: Yeah, but you. But I know that you uh, play the biggest venues in... England, that you can play like the O2. Well,
2: not the. I don't play stadiums, but yeah, the biggest, biggest indoor arenas you can play. That's, that was my last tour. I'm not going to do that, even those if I like could 12, sustain that. 12 to 15,000. Well, 10. I peaked at 10 oh, okay. at the O2. Oh,
3: well, all right. I know.
2: Uh, that was a sort of stupid experiment, and I had an orchestra, and we needed to play those venues to make it pay for itself. But yeah, I mean, it's incredible here. You can, you can play a lot of shows in a year. Um, and and specialise in live. And it's been interesting for me starting to work in America because uh, there's plenty of places to tour. You can tour endlessly in the States to colleges and theatres and towns uh, and be a live guy, but the culture of live isn't there. You have to sort of try and train your agents and managers and booking agents to realise that the live is an end in itself because in the states it seems to be so you know so once you've done your few years of having to do the live you'll get your TV show right, right. or you'll get into film and you go well I, no no I want to I'm a live performer and I write musicals and I suppose if some amazing script, script came up that someone wanted me to act in I would do it because I used to be a, an actor But um, but that's not why I'm a comedian I'm not a comedian to try and not be a comedian yeah um, I'm a comedian because I do concerts that people laugh at.
1: Yeah. Well, it's the, there, there's a weird sort of back and forth with live performance because you you need to be able to sell tickets in the States, which is very hard because our country is very big. Yeah. And so you need to do television and film in to order to, to get people back out. So it's this. I feel like it's sort of this constant Checking back and, and forth. thing, yeah, yeah. Have I done enough public stuff yet so that I can get 800 people to come out? So, not yet? All right, I'll go yeah. back and do more. Yeah. Oh, now right. I
2: have. Okay. Yeah. And then you go to live. It's, yeah, so you need to do the live to earn the, to
1: earn the right to do telly, which in turn,
2: uh, you know, facilitates your
1: desire to play live. Yeah. When did you start figuring out, or when did you decide to sort of drift into the comedy world then? Some... October
2: the eleventh, two thousand and three, or something. <laughs> I can find the date. I did. Um, I was playing a lot of piano for sort of cabaret acts and stuff, and playing in original bands that weren't sort of taking off. Mostly because I had to earn money and playing in cover bands and doing whatever came up, mm-hmm. acting in plays when that came up, and uh, but really wanting to. When I moved to Melbourne in 2002, I thought I wanted to really push the band thing, try and get a record deal, and on the other hand, try try and be an actor. I wanted to be a acty bandy guy, mm-hmm. um, but actually, they were both the wrong thing to be doing. But well, not really, because what what that what that did is made me very frustrated because I couldn't get an agent because I'm not a trained actor and I I had only worked in Perth and no one. No, that, that has no credibility in the in the big eastern states and uh, and as I say I was in a bit of a catch 22 situation with the music thing because I do try out nights with my original band and the venue would go this is great come and play Friday or Saturday and I'd go oh, I can't I'm in a cover band <laughs> that pays me Whatever, but at least it's guaranteed, so I can't let them down or I'll lose that job and I can't afford to only do original. So I was in that trap, you know, just like so many people are in different versions of it. You know, I have to be a journalist to be a writer, which gives me no time to be a writer, whatever. And uh, But I did this thing in 2003. I was playing piano for my friend Eddie Perfect and we've both been on this sort of um, mission to see who could write sort of the most... He's a serious muser, and we were both writing satirical stuff, but relentlessly being musically good as well. That was trying, you know, trying not to let the fact that we were writing satire uh, allow us to take the easy way out. We really sort of pushed each other a bit. And uh, I booked a room in the Melbourne Fringe Festival in October, gave it a title. Made a show image, got my friend to draw a weird show image, called it "Naval Cerebral Melodies with Umbilical Chords. <laughs> and um, and uh, just booked a room and said, I'll, I'll do a 90-minute show. And uh, then I had to figure out what that show was. And basically what I did is took all my stupid songs and wrote a couple of extras and a poem and a bit of monologue about stuff. And I was really seeing it as cabaret, not as stand-up, not as comedy and uh, did that for about 18 months and then stuck what I'd come up with in the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2005, which is when I really made the change from calling it cabaret to calling it comedy.
1: It went good. <laughs> it did, but, I, but that's, a, that's a great... I mean, for a lot of people who... Because a lot of like, people who want to be comics or want to be writers whatever, whatever listen, listen to the podcast, and a lot of them always say how do I start doing something? And that's an interesting way to start where you go, well, I just booked the show and then I had to figure it out. Like giving yourself that kind of a structural deadline. Yeah,
2: yeah. that um, fear, uh, fear is the great motivator because the hardest thing about doing anything creative is that it's really hard to motivate. It's really easy to procrastinate, easier than if you've got a job that has a very designated and structured aim and a paycheck, which implies a certain level of, uh, um, you know, work. If... When you're trying to just make stuff, you've just got nothing, unless you impose those deadlines on yourself. You won't do anything. Well, I won't anyway. I don't wake up in the night and go, I need to write a song. I used to when I was young, but not not for many years. You just have to scare the shit out of yourself. So booking a venue, I it's the best thing to do having said that I, and I've always done that even when I was playing original bands I wasn't very good at doing the sort of weekly gigs i just record an album book a 500 seater and say that's my launch and it's because of this sort of theatre background that I've got where a show is something you put on from scratch I've got a, a, sh- a show mentality it always has been for me that you put on a show and my comedy reflects that you know and, it's not stand-up, it's a show or it's a concert or something, but it's not. I've never done five minutes ever or ten in a club. Um, I might have recently because friends asked me to, but I didn't come up that way. Having said that, booking 90 minutes if you haven't got a hell of a lot of hours under your belt getting good at what you do is just self-indulgent nonsense. I mean, when I booked that venue, I had played Piano in public in various forms for 10 years and had been writing music and having that performed in public for theatre and in bands and stuff for 10 years and had spent hours and hours and hours on stage in cover bands or plays or whatever for 10 years. So, regardless of the fact that I didn't have any experience as a comic, in inverted commas, I had done my 10,000 hours or sure. whatever the theory sure. is. So, you've got to get the balance. You've got to get to a point where you think I'm proud of this. And then all in, you know. Once you got to a point where you think this is different and I'm proud of it, you go all in, every cent, every hour, all, all your fear, you just go all in because everyone's trying to do it. So if you don't go all in, you're fucked.
1: Well, and it also, it, it, you can tell when someone's not either comfortable or confident with what they're doing and the audience, yeah, <laughs> the audience is like a fucking wolf. Like yeah. they'll, they'll, they they'll, smell s- it. they'll smell it, they'll totally. sense it. And yeah. then if they feel like... If they feel like you're not in charge of the show, there is a weird sort of alpha thing that happens with a performer on stage, where you kind of have to show them you're the leader of the pack. Exactly, yeah. because they because they want to follow you. That's yeah. why they paid money. That's why they yeah. came and sat down in the seat. They want to be led around. But if you look like you're not willing to lead them, they'll <laughs> they don't they'll
2: yeah, and it, it, in a much more subtle way, in, in comedy that, that translates as heckling and shuffling and coughing, um, but but heckling and and, and silence, mm-hmm. the dreaded silence. But in, in all art, you know, it's a band that'll translate to people just going to the bar and in, in a play it'll be rustling and coughing and pe- people will only pay attention if you make them.
1: You did an amazing show the other night at, uh, at the Soto Theatre, um, Matt Kirshen. Saw that I, who is a a wonderful British uh, comic, saw that I was in London and said, "Oh, we're doing this show at the Soho Theater, and Paul Provenza's running it, who I've known for twenty years." Yeah, and it was a such a simple, genius idea that had never occurred to me before in the years that I've been doing comedy, been an improvisational stand-up set. Yeah, where you have to go on stage and then they project a series of topics throughout your set that you have to hit. But you have to make it seem like this is the set that you have been yeah. that you have perfected. It's
2: just for an years. improv exercise, but there's not really the, the audience and you see the topic at the same time. Mm-hmm. So the the topic is projected onto the wall. It hits the wall, and you have to be talking within seconds. Uh, and I was so scared, but it is it is a brilliant idea, and and it's brilliant not not because most people have the capacity to make up stand up comedy. In the moment, no one does. Uh, and nor, nor should you be able to. If it was that easy, it would, you know, there are people who can be funny just talking, but, but, it, but if you did that without telling the audience, that this was the structure of what we're doing. It would not go well, you know. But the audience is in on it. They know that you are seeing the topic as they see the topic. And they're carrying around all their baggage. They're going, oh, my God, I would just die. And they're seeing, they're thinking, what would I say? What would I say? And when, you're, when I was backstage watching Greg Proops and all these amazing guys do this, I was like, blank. But when you're on stage, you've got a mic in your hand and a light in your face and the adrenaline's running for people like us who have done that a lot it's kind of like flicking a switch so it right. can be a very very positive thing and because the audience knows that you're improvising they are G'd up and so on the edge of their seats waiting for you to say something just clever or to turn a corner that they didn't see coming or to just interpret the topic in a way they didn't see coming or to dig up a pun or, or to, to go some circuitous route to landing on the topic whatever the sort of uh, currency that you play with, they're incredibly enthusiastic in their response it's a really cool
1: idea it's, it's, and
2: I really enjoyed it, but it's, I was sketchy.
1: I know, I would have, because Matt came up to me before the show and he said, oh one of the performers isn't here, do you want to go up? and I, my response was uh, you, you, uh, what, when? when? when do you want me to go? because like, I'm, yeah. I'm, the wheels are turning in my yeah. head like what am I going to, the same way that you're backstage, kind of blanking but that's that is the perfect distillation, I think, of when you can get your brain out of the way, you're okay. When you're backstage yeah. and you're thinking about it, your brain's in the way. Yeah. When you're on stage, you're just you just kinda fucking shove There's your no brain room out of the way to and go, brain. Yeah. we gotta no we gotta fucking the, get in this.
2: No room for the second layer for the for the uh, self um, editing layer. You just your brain's entirely on the next thing it's a bit like playing sport if you've played much sport you know you don't actually have space you're just thinking about the game and it's it's I, I thought it was a really interesting experience and gratifying for me because um they put a keyboard on stage for me because obviously playing uh, funny songs is my stock in trade and I'm very able to improvise songs and and it's and you don't have to be very funny to make a song funny. If you're improvising it, you just have to hit one rhyme or land on a, a tagline that sounds like a pop song. And uh, and I uh, and I was glad that I was there because I thought I'll I'll probably just go straight to the keyboard and 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 kind of wow them with song improvisation because that's something most people don't understand. Um, but I didn't. I stayed. I stayed up at the mic and that was my mission to go to the piano as little as possible and i basically went once i think you did you went for the the, the chlamydia
1: chlamydia and you which couldn't... sounded like a jingle and actually i didn't do a very good job with that oh i thought it was great <laughs> and, and the other, the other thing that and i don't know if the audience picked up on this but i but at least when you when you did when you did a little bit at the, at the piano the chlamydia yeah you did the song and i think you did, you did like aids no chlamydia yeah or yeah, something yeah. like that but then you you did the quick song and you stood up and you're like, see, I didn't even need the piano that much. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. It sort of felt to me like, oh yeah, that's really that's awesome. But he's still pushing himself to to not have to feel like he's relying on the thing that he's been doing for yeah. so long. Yeah. And absolutely. I, I kind of I thought that was really charming. Oh, thanks. It was. It's it's a nice safe space, you know,
2: and it's and it's different from improv in the sort of improv game if people have watched improv you don't really have that, the, the rules and the structure of... Because if you ever go see an improv troupe, there, there's sort of training you do, mm-hmm. learning not to block and how to take up offers, and, you know, there are sort of signs and, and ways out. Uh, and actually, uh, Proops was sort of playing the topics like an improv game and acting scenarios absolutely brilliantly. I mean, he's a complete genius. Um, but if you're not an actor and you haven't done a, a lot of improv, you just got to start talking and, uh, and that's interesting to me because I've done a bit of, I've watched a lot of improv because I used to play piano for an improv troupe um, and uh, this is a very different thing it really is proper free-falling it's cool
1: the show's called The Set List for anyone who's listening and it's, it's a really terrific show and I believe quite a lot on YouTube
2: I don't think ours are going to be but well, they might be. They might be.
1: Jesus. Well, but I think yeah. So I think that so they do it here, and then I think they're going to start doing it at the UCB in LA. Yeah, you know, on a monthly basis. I, Rich Hall, who I hadn't seen in oh, years, no. who I loved on SNL, and then yeah. he, Rich Hall, did all the Sniglet stuff and all of the he did a bunch of really cool prop pieces on SNL in the '80s, and and then just kind of disappeared. And then turns out, oh kind of, no, yeah. he's he's been in London all this time, yeah. and he's he's pretty pretty hugely successful here he's, he's yeah he does great I mean I remember watching Rich Hall
2: on some stand up you know Royal Variety Show or something in the 90s when I was still in Perth and thinking oh my god that man is the
1: funniest thing I've ever seen
3: yeah just that dry totally dead man <laughs> And, and he's got as well. Sniglets,
1: yeah. <laughs> and he, he turned he turned his setlist into into just a straight rant yeah. where he just kind of got in the audience faces, and it was yeah. it was a. Uh, and I stayed on and played piano under him. Oh, did you see him on I a night did, without me? No, no. I, yeah, I did. Oh, I saw right. a night without you. I saw yeah, a night
2: right. without you. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we were on our on our one, I played piano under him. It was I think he I think he thought that was a good idea. I don't know whether he regretted having
3: <laughs> me on stage.
1: Yeah. How do you keep pushing yourself then? If you if the whole idea is that you need to put yourself in uncomfortable situations and you need to sort of scare yourself and you you know, when you after you've played for ten thousand people and after you've done, you know, like all the British television shows and how do you how do you manage to keep doing that? Well I think it's about
2: making I guess related to what I was saying about booking a space, if you haven't done the hours, the the it's about finding a balance between doing things that challenge yourself and not being a self indulgent dick. Um, so so I want to in the next couple of years uh, write another musical, um, you know something more more difficult. Although I, I've got this musical called Matilda that's on in the West End, which is uh, Roald Dahl in, in, in adaptation. And it's going really well, and it was incredibly challenging and really, really great. Um, but I want to do something even harder than that, which is write a musical based not on a famous story. Um, so that's something I want to do. I've, I've been a songwriter for 20 years, I've never done a studio album, and I think I will be um, judged... Uh, and that's scary to me, because I because when you're a comedian, if you go, I'm going to write an album of not-comic songs now, um, that that's putting yourself in a very judgeable position. Um, so there's plenty of really scary things for me still to do. I do want to act again. I'm going to get back on and do some theatre in the next 18 months, sort of mid-next year, mid-13 in Australia, hopefully, and um, just straight just doing a stop play that I've always wanted to do and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So luckily for me because i am a, a songwriter pianist singer comedian actor you know arguably i'm not good at any one of those things but i'm fine at all of them i there's no shortage of um, scary shit still to go but it is you're right it is about it is about scaring myself, but I do want to not use abuse my position of power that I have now of having an audience and having interest and just go off-piste and do a whole lot of stupid projects that no one's interested in. But uh, I really
1: believe in changing it up as much as you can. I always, uh, I w- I was in a musical comedy duo for a long time, and, and I always thought, oh, it would be easier to do music because even if they're not getting the bits, you can just distract them with harmonies or, or, yeah. or music or, whatever, or, or you know, just the fact that there's music. But then what I found is we stopped playing comedy clubs because our songs weren't jokey. Yeah. They were sort of like sketches. So I guess where I'm going with this is did you find that, you know, when you start playing in front of an audience, it's because you, you can't bail out of a song really the way you bail out of a stand-up bit. It's like a four-minute sketch. So if people aren't on board you just have to they just have to sit through it yeah
2: I mean I might be a bit deluded because I just don't notice (laughs) if people are enjoying it I guess uh, I um mostly my songs uh I don't know it's like when they're not that funny I don't really mind I mean there are songs in my shows that are not funny at all um they're absolutely, completely not funny because, as I say, I don't see myself as a stand-up. My, my, my only currency is not laughter, as I keep telling myself. <laughs> um, because, uh, just because I, I didn't come to this with any heroes. I didn't watch Bill Bailey or know who Tom Nero was or I just wanted to, I don't know, I don't know, I just thought... I should write stupid songs. I've always written stupid songs. I guess it started at parties, drinking and with a guitar at 18 and we all just made up stupid songs. And, and uh, yeah, I, I just don't... I, I sort of feel like I, I write the songs that fit the show and the show has a sort of arc where, you know, I make sure it doesn't go swing, song, swing, song, you know, I, I make sure that the styles are various and that we don't get stuck on religion for too long and that, you know, whatever my the arc is and that we come down here and then up there and a big number at the beginning and a big one before the end of the first act and, you know, ease in slowly and, you know, save the really sort of intellectually difficult stuff uh, when they're um, primed but not tired and all that, all those considerations. And once I put a show together, I kind of think, fuck them, um, by which I mean, the opposite of "fuck 'em," which is that I've worked as hard as I can to make this a show that everyone will like. Uh, and if a bit consistently doesn't work, I'll change it out. But usually, I just sort of make it work, you know, with eyebrows and <laughs> a piano solo, whatever. I don't know. I just sort of. I think because I don't think I need laughs all the time, I'm I'm just not under that pressure. I I do get. Uh, plenty of laughs i mean people walk out of my show feeling like they've watched a comedy show but then they're not laughing every 10 seconds like a stand-up
1: i think that's kind of well yeah that's i guess with stand-up well if you're in the club scene you really kind of have to yeah well i've never had that pressure that's the
2: short answer i've never done the clubs and been put through that um cookie cutter of stag nights you know, that that you just go, these people are not going to listen. I, I have friends who do stand-up who do long... I mean, Stuart Lee is a perfect example of someone who does whole bits where people sort of laugh uncomfortably or don't laugh, and he's one of the best comedians in the world, um, if not the best. And, and if you don't make yourself think that laughter is the only currency, then you can create basically interesting one-person theatre or doesn't have to have a genre it's just if you can find your audience like daniel kitson has and you do what you fucking want they'll come and watch you do a two-hour spoken word monologue like he does i
1: guess that's true it's sort of the difference between it's just what you get when you start doing stand-up you don't start with one-hour shows you start with five-minute sets yeah so you kind of get into this mindset of well that's another five minutes okay here's a new five minutes and then you just start piecing those together yeah but i guess that's a great approach of thinking about your set really as more of an arc.
2: Yeah, as a piece of theatre. I mean, the, the trouble is the genre. If you're a stand-up comedian, you, you need to have, you know, eight laughs a minute or whatever. <laughs> and you need, to, you need to do that relentlessly. If you want to be Louis C.K., well, see, there's another example. You, you, Louis is incredible. But as he 's got more developed, he goes longer without a laugh because he 's an intelligent guy, and people want to just listen to him mm-hmm. you know i don 't i don 't know, but I bet you I bet if you went back to his club days you 'd find that he 's got more expansive and you know whatever uh, once you 're free of the clubs, you realize that you have people in your company for ninety minutes two hours, and' they 're there to watch you and listen to what you have to say and in my case, I've got a, I've got a, a very strong sort of worldview that comes through my work. So, people are coming to hear that articulated, and they're coming to watch me play piano a bit. And um, I send people out crying, you know, because it's because I just don't have. I've never had that pressure. And comedians, as they get away from that pressure, you find they they go in that direction as well, where laughs aren't the only currency
1: mm, that's a really interesting thought that it never occurred to me before because you just it's so ingrained in your head like must yeah. get laughs but oh this needs more tags all right let me tag yeah. this out take out yeah. the fat yeah we'll see people
2: comedians listening to me or, or anyone listening to me that doesn't like my work will go you're just making excuses for not being funny um which might be true as well but it doesn't really worry me because i never ...called myself a stand-up comedian... ...I never... ...all I wanted very early on... ...I went oh, I'd be love to... ...I'd love to get to the point... ...where the journals stop saying... ...well his stand-up's not as strong as his, his songs... ...or "Or he's like a young Bill Bailey... ...or comic musician... ...like I can't... ...I wanted desperately to get to the point... ...where people just went... ...what's What's this guy got to offer us this year... ...because we always go to his shows... ...and we always enjoy them... ...and you just become a bit... Your ...your name becomes your category... Mm-hmm. ...and I think I'm sort of there... Um, Here and in the states, interestingly, I'm sort of there as well because people tend to come because they've seen Storm or the Pope song. They come because of the worldview. They're not coming because they saw a stand up and they saw the word stand up on my poster and went, oh, he might be a bit like Louis C.K. They're not coming for that. They're coming because they've seen a particular um, set of ideas presented. I think.
1: The first time I saw you was in Montreal in, for just for laughs, in 2010. And we were doing those weird club soda shows, which yeah, are those yeah. early... The club soda shows, uh, there's a there's like a best of the festival that they do every night of the festival. And it's like a 7 o'clock show. And it's in the summer. It's still light outside. It's kind of a yeah. weird... And, you know, the people that come to those shows are... They're just older French-Canadian people. That, yeah. like, you know, fit, the median age is like 45, 50 years old. Yeah, um, They're very polite, but they're not really... They're not really shows that sort of prime you for. Oh, I'm shooting a gala this week. Yeah. I feel all pumped. You sort of, oh, man, And the first time I saw you did the you did the Pope show, and um, you know, I, I mean, it, it, the song killed. But then there were definitely older people in the audience that just couldn't
2: process.
1: Yeah, yeah. what you were saying, and I, wh- what what <laughs> you know, like like a like a not outrage, but a little like <gasps> this is not. not he He's not supposed to be able to say that out loud.
2: Yeah. It's, it's so good and, and, and I've been lucky I, I really think that's a that's a huge thing I mean we're, we're, I'm treading over the same ground but it's just sort of firming up in my head as we speak that your material is a result of the uh, evolutionary pressures that have been put on it you know you're, if you've spent 10 years in clubs you will be dumbed down because success in comedy is laughter and laughter in clubs is not necessarily very smart laughter because they're drunk and they're they're in a group and they're mm-hmm. whatever no uh that, that sounds condescending but it's, it's just the atmosphere it's not that they're not smart people it's that it's a club and you've got 10 minutes and you've got to deliver your stuff and everyone's pissed and so that that's the the pressure and the jokes that don't survive that pressure die like like uh, attributes in a species and uh,
1: yeah that's great I love to hear um, you say that I love to hear you say
2: that so Montreal you know those sorts of things which is quite a corporate festival where the crowds are not really necessarily comedy crowds and stuff that stuff can be damaging if you think about it if you if you let yourself worry what the Montreal crowds think you're you're fucked you know because you you shouldn't let Montreal crowd I mean I love Montreal and often there are great crowds there but those corporate show those mashup shows called Down Under and Seven Australian Comedians (laughs) and all that those shows if you let them influence you and it's very hard not to because it hurts it hurts material dying hurts wherever it happens you've got to walk off stage let yourself have your night of self-loathing and your morning of thinking of quitting and then get the fuck over it and remember that you you need to allow yourself to be judged by the crowds you want Mm -hmm. so if you've got a crowd of people in front of you who are smart savvy interested you know in my case uh rational um (laughs) comedy you know non-religious comedy goers and your joke doesn't work then yeah let that let that place its pressure on you and fix it or dump it or whatever but don't don't let a bunch of Drunk fucks on a stag do change your material. You just can't do it.
1: No, most clubs, unless you want to do this club's forever exactly. In which case, do you've got to get that right. Most clubs are a step above a sport, not even a step above. They're a, they're like a cousin of a sports bar. Yeah. is basically what you're in. And I, I've always just sort of, especially in the states, especially I mean, the in the region. states. But even just you know, even in just Los Angeles, just seeing the different identities of the clubs there, each club. I always refer to them as Galapagan. I'm like these are different little islands, yeah. and they breed different types of comics. Exactly. And, you know,
2: because exactly, exactly right. It's it's Darwinian. You got you gotta play the clubs that bring the crowds that will enhance your material in the direction that you you would want to watch. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a little bit so you know it's a bit of a bit incestuous, you know. But basically, if I've got a crowd of people who like the sort of shit I like and my shit's not working I'm in trouble
1: you know how long was it before you were able to start getting your how long did it take for your crowds to start coming out to to see your shows instead of having to that moment where you kind of have to win the crowd over like like the stranger crowds well I guess
2: um, that Melbourne 2005 I sort of was just papering the house the whole time just getting freebies 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 and and within that the Melbourne Comedy Festival is a very it's a great festival it's got a lot of comedy and a lot of people go to it so if your show's good and you give away enough tickets and the word of mouth kicks off then you're good so i was in a 180 seater or something and i started with 30 40 50 people sometimes 20 and by the end of the third week i was feeling it um so that's a little dense uh, microcosm of the real world because in melbourne you have a during comedy festival you have a crowd of people who want to be watching comedy so if your word gets out it's good um that doesn't reflect in the real world but it works the same way and then in uh edinburgh in the same year i did the same thing i was in a 350 seater and i papered it and papered it and papered it and the reviews came out and everyone reads the reviews in edinburgh And by the end of the first week i had a couple of you know the, you know this is uh this is something new you should see this sort of reviews um and so by the end of the second week, I was selling out. And then I did a couple of shows on the West End that sold out because of the winning the prize in Edinburgh and all that sort of stuff. And then I did a tour and uh, sort of sold most of the seats in sort of 300-seaters around Britain. Went back to Australia, same sort of thing, and then just doubled every year, which... If you know anything about exponentiality, it means you get big numbers very quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah, it only takes a couple of years to, to. But I think the trick, it sounds like, and, and where you're luckier than most people, is that you knew what you wanted to say. And I think a lot of performers know that they want to perform, but they don't exactly know what it is that they want to say. And that yeah. takes a while to figure that yeah. out. Yeah, I
2: don't know if I did know what I wanted to say, but it had never crossed my mind that you weren't supposed to say the things that I wanted. I I didn't have a a sort of macro intent. I want to be a comedian who talks about, you know, hypocrisy and ethics and religion. Um, But those are the things I was reading about and thinking about, and at no point did anyone or any crowd or any club uh, teach me that that's not what you do. So I've said before that naivety has always been my greatest asset. I was incredibly um, naive. I didn't know anything about comedy. Um, similarly with my musical I I don't really watch loads of musicals and I don't read music and I don't study Sondheim and um, and my naivety was very important going into that because all I did is read the script and went oh what would she sing and how would it sound you know it's incredibly simple which isn't to say it's simplistic but it's a simple process and um, yeah look I've been yeah, I've been incredibly lucky I mean straight up not, notwithstanding the fact that I came with some skills because I was 30 and I'd been playing for a long time mm-hmm. but the fact that my version of what comedy is and my world view it's a conflation of time and place and stuff I mean I struggled a lot through my 20s and when this came it, 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 it went really well really quickly or quickly for me I mean not X Factor quickly but you know, in five years it's been really good and I do think I'm very lucky that there's a certain zeitgeist of audiences, people wanting to read about and listen to and watch uh, stuff about, you know
1: rationalism oh, and I don't shit. think I don't think X Factor Quick is I don't think anyone should ever strive for that. I don't no, think you absolutely I don't awesome. think you should ever want that because if you became famous in a week you can get unfamous. Exactly, because you don't have a foundation of skills. You don't have a foundation of... I mean, you have to have enough sort of fuck-ups under your belt and yeah. learning experiences under your belt to yeah. be comfortable with who you are, and, and it's just not... <laughs> I would not want to... You know, I was 30 when
2: people started listening in a sw- small way, and I guess 33 or 4 before I started getting recognised on the street. And, and I'm now 36. I wouldn't have wanted to be any younger... Nor would I have wanted it to happen any quicker. I mean it's it's really a head fuck. In fact in fact it's not. It's it's actually fine. But every now and then it's a head fuck. And if I didn't have my experience and my wife and my kids and my family and my self esteem which is built on something deeper than success because I had none for so long, you know, that self esteem you build up in your twenties, that you have to build up so you don't get depressed when you're doing <laughs> night after night of terrible gigs, you right. know. Um, all the all those tools, and just knowing what you value, because that's when you learn what you value in your twenties. You you sort of have a pretty good hint at it in your late teens, at the sort of person you want to be and stuff. But it's your twenties that teaches you what what you what you value and and expands your knowledge base and all that stuff. I've got a song that I've never quite written called Spend Your 20s Poor. I think I mean obviously I'm an optimist so I look back at my history and think it's a good one, but I do think it's a really it's a huge problem to be rich and famous at 22. I don't know who you are. Who, who the fuck are you if you're rich and famous at 22?
1: Well, I think that's why a lot of people kind of crash and burn because they don't know. Yeah. And also when you get to that level of success and you're really young, you don't have enough People in your life kind of keeping you in check. Who, who you know their motive. <laughs> yeah, know.
2: exactly. I mean, Bo, Bo, Bo we're just looking
1: at a photo of Bo. He, and I, Reggie Watts. That's a fucking great picture that uh, Dan Dian took in Montreal. It's
2: amazing. I I'm sure it's online somewhere. But um, Bozy was famous at 16, internet famous, mm-hmm. huge, you know. And then a the whole lot of people, you know, scooped him up, agents and stuff. and try to figure out what to do with him and he's got such good parents and a girlfriend from the early days and and he's really really bright Uh, shockingly bright he's yeah he's annoyingly bright i was in a room in montreal with eddie azard and me and uh, a couple of agents and producers and all these kind of quite big wiggy people and i just had i had this moment where i realized that beau was just so by far the smartest person in the room. I mean, he's <laughs> the just smartest. And everyone's tallest.
1: you know talking shit. Yeah, he's, six, he's like he's like six. six, six, so he's five,
2: six. six and he
1: loves to you know at uh, in Montreal the the main hotel, which I think is the Hyatt where everyone stays. There's a circular bar, and after everyone's yeah. shows, everyone just kind of yeah. And it's like a, it's sort of like Montreal's like a rain gutter that just spills everyone out yeah. there. Spews comedians. They just all the comedians with oh, it. And. Uh, and and you know I would end up talking to Bo there for a while. Like he would come up and want to start talking about science and physics because yeah, he yeah. he knows that I love that stuff and he yeah. knows he knows way more than I do. And he just starts talking about wormholes and I feel like yeah. I should email him because they're about to they think they're Sir, about to discover the, the Higgs boson. I'm on
2: tour at the moment with someone who works at CERN. Are you serious? I'm on
1: tour with Brian
2: Cox at the moment. Oh my science God. show! How are you not seeing the science show? You're going to be gone. I'm going. I told you on Tuesday night it's on, but I'm not on but um, you should see it because they're going to go live to CERN at (sighs) the show
1: that's amazing yeah they're close they think they're going to discover it sometime in the beginning of next year the really
2: interesting thing is that CERN have some results that I've seen the paper but I can't I don't know what it means but um, I can't read that language but uh, um, (laughs) uh, and Brian has read the paper obviously but science being science of course they've done a my understanding is that CERN has done a test, and although um, CERN's the only place that can do the acceleration required to do this, there's so some other other group. I don't know if it's in another accelerator or just another group working at the LHC, but they they're not gonna they won't look at each other's papers until they're prepared because they don't wanna they want it to be blind. They don't want anyone to be. Uh, biased in what they're looking for and right. all this sort of shit, it's incredible it's very, very exciting um, so as far as I know, sort of today CERN are getting the results from the CMO or whatever it's bloody called you know, they're collating their results today right. and I've no idea but something in the eye of Cox uh, made me think that it might be bigger than we think this data now it, it might, it might be like a serious
1: indication of Higgs I wonder if that's, I wonder if, it, like, what the next step is, is once they discover yeah. this last fundamental piece, if that means that they are going to pretty quickly have an understanding of why objects have mass, or is it like, no, 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 this was just so that we could begin that, Down that. that process. Well, see, it's
2: my understanding of sort of the, the fundamental... Um, I mean I must say I have no idea what I'm talking about I can talk about this stuff in the most stupid language I don't even know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about it but but my understanding is that the, the sort of central um, equation in quantum mechanics acts as if the Higgs boson is true the the equation sort of requires Higgs's hypothesis to be the case mm-hmm. in order that I can make the calculations that quantum physics makes, successfully, predictively, and all that. So it's so I don't really under... I could be wrong about that, but that's what confuses me, that area, because it seems that quantum physics is going about business as if Higgs is right, and that if they confirm that Higgs is right, they'll go, yeah, he was right, thank goodness, we've well, been well using that us. all along. Well done, yeah, us. Um, but anyway, it's, you know, it's very, very... Uh, I mean, it's there's a whole lot of space, and we don't know what it is. And it's a, isn't it a step towards understanding dark matter? You know?
1: Well, they're going to look at it. I think. Yeah, I think we know that what's going to happen is. They're going to see the particle. It's going to be like opening the Ark of the Covenant. Everyone's going to be like, it's beautiful. And then they're going to get zapped in the face. And then yeah. everyone's going to die because yeah. you're not supposed to see it. Big stone is going to roll after them. And then yeah. some weird German guy's going to melt yeah. right next to the LHC. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll, so, so, I mean, that'll happen. At yeah. least that'll be on some sort of That'll be nice, yeah.
2: Well, hopefully package. we'll get it live at the gig on Tuesday night.
3: <laughs> that would be epic. So Bo is <laughs> really really smart. A sweet um, kid. But he's and, very,
2: very young. Yeah. And every now and then you see it. You see how young he is, you know. And not that he tries to hide it. He, he's sitting there going, I'm a, I'm a kid, you know. He couldn't drink last time I was in town. Right. He's only just turned 21. And he's got incredible stability around him. But I'm still worried about him. Even the most stable, smartest kid, I'm worried about him. He's so insightful. So he knows that he's got a... And he's making this TV show for MTV and it's going to be really interesting and quirky. Mm -hmm. He's never made the obvious decision. He's... How many 20-year-olds in in the States given um, millions and millions of YouTube hits and all these agents going, we're going to make you a star, which is what they all say over and over again until you start not being able to hear the words what sort of how many American kids would go oh sorry I'm going to Edinburgh I'm going to the fringe
1: oh I, I mean I, I think Bo and maybe five other people because our whole culture is built around like no 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 you need to be on TV and be famous yeah. as quickly as possible and
2: America is where everything happens yeah I, I mean it, I I suffer that when I come to America this kind of like, what do you mean you're going home <laughs> this is you're here <laughs> <laughs> <But> you've arrived <laughs> where are you going come back <laughs> I mean, I'm going I'm going to England this is the biggest live comedy <laughs> nah
3: nah nah nah, nah, nah. We'll, we'll take a lot of their
2: shows <laughs> yeah,
1: and just right. make our own version
2: yeah exactly that's right
3: <laughs> we'll make a yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. you'll be fine
1: you'll be fine, you'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, and then Reggie Watts also in the picture who's is who's, who's, genuinely one of my favourite people in the world he's so good he's another he's, so he's another one of those guys that you talk to when you're like you're a lot smarter than I am Reggie yeah. Watts oh he's
2: well smart yeah he's an interesting guy he treads that sort of hippie line I, I don't really understand I haven't spent enough time with him to know because I think he quite likes uh, hallucinogens and stuff and, <laughs> and I don't really have that um, <laughs> I don't have that side of me so he's kind of a bit of a um, um, a, a mind traveller you know oh he and, definitely and that's his sort of view on the world and I'm this sort of hyper rational guy but he's he's I mean he's basically really smart and I sort of have to Strained to keep up. He's good.
1: The music show at Montreal has become really huge and, and I did it the very first year they had a music night with my buddy Mike what Furman. What year was that? I think it was 2005, oh, maybe. Oh, yeah. And it was very small and no one came to the shows and we didn't do well. And what was it called? What is it called? I, my thing no, what do they call the show now oh I don't remember it was, oh, uh, I think it was I think it was called Amped or something it's still year? called Amped. Amped Yeah. okay yeah, yeah. but right. it wasn't it wasn't it called wasn't Amped the first year we did it it was the music sh- yeah. show or yeah, something and, and no one it was late night show at Club Soda and no one came and like I said no one came and then uh, but you know in the, in the years since people like yourself and Reggie and Bo like have really made it the show to go to to the extent that they shot it this year didn't they Yeah, well, in two thousand and like they shot as a television special. I
2: I think it was last year, unless it was two years ago. That year, that photo was taken. Reggie and me and Beardy Man and oh yeah, of course. And it was this. It just we did a couple of nights in a row, and everyone came the first night, and it was just sort of just one of those nights that you wish you could force all the time, but you just can't because. Reggie was a bit kind of had some cookies or something and Beardy <laughs> Man and I was a bit drunk and and we all improvised and did a bit of freestyling and teasing each other and it was just kind of wicked. Uh, and everything a comedy night should be, but you can't make it. It's just that thing. With people feeling generous, comedy nights are often full of people feeling ungenerous, so comedians find it hard to make space for other comedians, it's very difficult, you know, to improvise and stuff. But with music, that opens all that up. Late and Live in Edinburgh is a place where people are constantly walking on stage and kind of interacting, but it often just becomes weird bullying and stuff. It's quite strange. But with music... It's very easy to be generous because you can just groove and beatbox and make space. And if, again, it's, laughter's not the only currency, so no one's freaking out if people
1: aren't laughing. Have you thought about maybe at Edinburgh one year, if you guys are all there, kind of maybe getting together again? That's, well, that's an amazing lineup, the four of you, Beardy Man. Is there someone else, by the way, that is, I think a lot of hardcore comedy nerds in the States know, but not everyone in the States knows? Beardy Man, and you definitely should look him up if you don't oh, know man. Beardy Man. His, his voice does well, things that you can't sexy. process. I've
2: done more than... I'm, I've gone some way down the track of trying to create a full-on big theatre show with, with Beardy and Reggie and and me and some violinists. and I, I've twice gone down that track and got close to booking venues... And uh, it was going to happen now. Actually, it's going to be in December this year. But Reggie's on tour with John Legend or something, or it was going to be. Or... So we lost Reggie, and then the thing fell over. And then I sort of reinvented it in my head to involve uh, some. I'm sort of careful about talking about it too much because I think sure, it's sure. a good idea, and I'm not sure. But I don't want people to think it's going right. to happen. But anyway, uh, some big, a uh, big. Violinist who plays through pedals and Beardy Man. And you know, I, I, I want to create, create this sort of music freak show, which is bits of, and then try and get someone like Tim Key or someone to, to do some poetry or, you know, make it really weird and musical. And then in the second act, just open it up and improvise and make it sort of stunning.
1: That's really, know. that's
2: great. Because with Beardy Man, you can sort of blow people's minds.
1: That's our hour. We hit like right at exactly an hour.
2: Amazing. It really was good. Just say something pithy to finish off?
1: <laughs> I have no pith. Um, I think the proximity lemons will be performing nowhere near each other. <laughs> On either side of the globe at the Un- same undetermined Wait timing. a minute. This did come back around because the two particle accelerators are essentially proximity lemons. They are. Proximity lemons. Firing proximity lemons. <laughs> at, at the same time... Very close to the speed of light. But not... But then, but then hooking up to form a data set that is useful. So if you could talk to Mr. Cox about maybe renaming these two facilities, the proximity lemons, then I feel like our job here will have been accomplished. All right. It's made the last hour worth it. Was that pithy enough? That's pithy as hell, man. All right, good. Thanks, man. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. But wait! Don't enjoy your burrito just yet. Uh, as promised, I'm tacking on one of Tim's songs at the end of this podcast. Now, this is taken from an Australian TV show called The Sideshow with Paul McDermott. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs by Tim. I just, I love it. I love the musicianship. I love the lyrics. I love the performance. So here you go. It's from a few years ago. It's a Rock and Roll Nerd by Tim Minchin. Yeah, on okay, radio. Oh, God, sorry. Old radio habits. Bad host. Bad, bad.
3: Doesn't have a problem with drugs He just doesn't Get them (laughs) He's fine that his Mates have tattoos But he thinks they'll regret them He likes going to pubs But he hates it when the music's too loud He tends not to go To rock concerts cause he can't Stand the crowds But all he's ever wanted to be He's a rock star on Rage or MTV, but he knows that it's not fucking likely. He just turned 30. He knows that he will always be a rock and roll nerd. He'll keep writing songs the world will never hear, and do they won't be heard? He'll just keep writing. Oh yeah. But you see, the problem is He always dreamt of being a star But he learned piano instead of guitar (laughs) Which in the 90s didn't get you very far So while the other kids were learning stairway He was the piano to their forte But he was convinced one day he'd rock their fucking asses Be an icon for the disenfranchised masses grow his hair long and rebel against the state but just for now that'd have to wait cause he's running late for his morning classes and he will always be a rock and nerd he'll keep playing gigs that no one knows about and though it sounds absurd he'll just keep playing oh yeah but you see the problem is there's not much depth in what he's singing He's a victim of his upper-middle-class upbringing So he can't write about the hood Or bling-bling So he sits and imagines his girlfriend is dead To try and evoke some angst in his middle-class head But the bitches always fine at half-past nine when they go to bed and he's not spent a single night in prison. He has no issues with nutrition. He has no drinking problem and no drug addiction. Unless you count the drugs they put in chicken. And marijuana always tends to make him cough. He doesn't look good with his T-shirt off, and when he tries to act tough, you can tell he's tricking. But Out late, a puff and pills and having fun. He goes home and showers and gets a good eight hours. He gets the thrills from his morning run. And while his mates or go on dates, a taking speed and drinking cans of Jim Bean. He stays home and cooks, calls up with a book with a girl he's had since he was 17. Cause he's never really been part of the scene. Give him guns and roses, he'll take Queen. He's more into Beatles than the Stones. He's more of Stevie Wonder than Ramones. Around a panel van. He never shot a Pantera band He doesn't know the difference between metal and thrash He could not tell you nothing about excellent slash He likes Betty Falls and the Jackson 5 He knows all the words to stay in love And though he wants to feel crunchy and cool He spent 11 years at a private school So it do not matter how he tries He cannot hide behind his rock and roll eyes Cause you've either got it or you don't Yeah, you will even rock it or you won't he knows that his music lacks depth, but it just can't be helped. He has nothing interesting to say, so he writes about himself. <laughs> but he doesn't want to seem self-obsessed. So he writes in third person (laughs) In an attempt to sing more rock and roll But he suspects it's not working (laughs) And deep in his heart he knows That he'll never be Silverchair or Eskimo Joe And even if he was quite pretty With small pants like Kylie He knows that he Will always be a rock and roller. He'll keep writing songs.
0: Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of skinny pop popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist... Dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.